Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. So I'd intended this morning to begin in uh, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Um, I also came to the realization that I am going to not be in the pulpit a week from today. I will be here, Lord willing, and my flight is scheduled to get back. But I'm leaving tomorrow morning early out of Salt Lake for the Courageous Churchman Conference in Jupiter, Florida with Pastor Jerry Ragg. Uh, really looking forward to it. Never been to this conference before. Um, some of you may remember a few years back, uh, Jerry preached here um, while he was in town in Jackson, came over and preached for us. Um, but Matthew 24 and 25 is an amazing portion of Scripture. It's one of Jesus' longest discourses. In fact, I think the only longer one is the Sermon on the Mount. And it deals with the end times. So this week I've been... Uh, going deep in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, and of course, Matthew 24, and just decided that I didn't want to interrupt that next week with, we're going to have a guest speaker and then pick it back up. So um, I prayed and the Lord laid this on my heart. And that is that there are great benefits from considering the eternal state. Um, Jesus, in his denunciation, condemnation, pronouncement of woes upon the religious hypocrites, the Pharisees and scribes, he says at the end of that chapter, chapter 23, he says, I'm going to read the last woe again, beginning in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Jesus says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Strong language from our Lord. And... This morning, I want to take a look at the reality of hell. As we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what are we sharing? A way for you to have a more fulfilled life? A way to be happier and healthier and wiser? If you listen to the false gospel preachers, richer? Your best life now? Friends, salvation, the fact that Jesus Christ is Savior, doesn't mean that He is rescuing you from the contemporary results of sin, right? We know that if you engage in a lifestyle of sin, there are consequences in this life you will pay. You will pay with disease, incurable. You will experience depression, when the things that you fulfill for the lust of your flesh don't fulfill ultimately. And then you're too old now to go back and enjoy some of those things. Sin will rip you off in this life. It will cause you to really look back and say, I've ruined my life. But friends, that consequence pales in comparison to the eternal consequence of an eternity in hell. Jesus says in verse 33, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It's a rhetorical question. In other words, you will not. You have no escape because you have played at religion. In fact, the first woe is the most serious woe of the seven in verse 13. Because these religious leaders were responsible before Yahweh, Almighty God, to usher people into the kingdom, to show them the right way to God. Jesus says, Woe to you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's places. People's faces. 
for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in to enter. That is the great condemnation. Jesus said it would be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you were drowned in the sea than cause someone to sin. How about shutting the door to heaven that they can't get in? Hell awaits. So this morning, I want to take a look at the reality of hell. The consequences of sin in this life. Yes, they are terrible. But they pale in comparison to the eternal reality of hell. David, King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. A man after the divine heart of God. When Saul was rejected from being king over Israel, it was said of David, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. The Apostle Paul, in his sermon in the synagogue of Antioch and Pisidia, in the first missionary journey in Acts 13, said this, I, um, uh, speaking of King David, he said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. David is special in Scripture. Of all the people that we read about in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, David is extremely special. I can't wait to see David in the kingdom coming. David was a man filled with love for God and for God's people. Yet David had much to say about hell. Psalm 18.5, The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. Psalm 116.3, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of hell laid hold of me, and I suffered distress in anguish. David speaks of his great deliverance in Psalm 86.13, For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of hell. He also tells of the destiny of the ungodly who will not receive Messiah by faith. He says in Psalm 9.17, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 11.6, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 55.15, Let death steal over them. Let them go down to hell alive, for evil is their dwelling place and in their heart. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, had much to say about hell. So does the Apostle Paul. He was filled with love and devotion to Christ. Some have said that Apostle Paul is the, perhaps the best Christian that has ever walked the earth. That could be true. He had a great love for sinners and was committed to gospel ministry no matter what the cost, even the cost of his own life. And the love of Christ filled Paul, motivated and drove his ministry. And Paul loved his enemies just as Jesus commanded him and us and every other Christian to do. When he stood before King Agrippa on the trial for his life, the king asked him, In short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In Acts 26, Paul replied, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Paul had an evangelistic zeal and a love for people to proclaim and preach the gospel as far and wide as he possibly could. But the Apostle Paul not only wished for people to know Christ, to have the same love, the same joy, and the same peace, he wanted them to have the same hope of glory, but Paul also was straightforward about the eternal consequences of rejecting Christ. He said in Philippians three eighteen and 19, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Friends, to reject the gospel is not just to, to, to now face a life of not being fulfilled. It is that but it is to face an eternal life of destruction. 
He warned of the wrath to come in Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He also warned that those who willfully walk in darkness and unbelief will be suddenly overcome. And we're going to come back to this point later, but in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The end will come suddenly, unexpectedly. And in definitive terms, he graphically described the end of those who reject the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What is the consequence of rejecting Christ? of rejecting the gospel, destruction. I remember back in the 90s, some of you weren't here in the 90s, but back in the 90s, church softball, church softball league, right? Big deal. I was a new Christian, and so I'm on the church softball team, and I get a base hit, make it to first base, and we're the Christian you know, team in a secular league. And, and so I'm talking to the guy playing first base, and, and there's kind of a lull in the, the competition. So I just asked him. I asked him about Christ. I said, do you know Christ? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? He goes, well, you know, he kind of gave an answer like, well, I don't really go to church. I really don't. You know, he says, I said, well, he is coming back. And he said, when he comes back, I'll welcome him with open arms. And as a new Christian, it caught me off guard a little bit, but I just basically said, he said, well, it'll be too late, right? It'll be too late. Destruction awaits. You, this isn't about having a warm feeling towards the idea of Jesus. And if he proves, if all, this, if all this in here proves true, and he shows up, oh, well, then I'll change my mind, and I'll welcome him with open arms. Friend, it'll be far too late. And most likely, you will not live to see that day unless the Lord comes back now or in your lifetime. You will live once, die once, and then face judgment. The Bible says. It is definitive. Paul is clear that those who do not receive Christ reject him. And you will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Paul has a great love in his heart for the church and for the lost. Like God, he desires none to be lost, but all to be saved. To come to faith in Christ and avoid the eternal everlasting destruction of a fiery hell. But friends, it is brutality to share the gospel and not warn of the consequences of your sins. To tell somebody, well, you ought to come to our church because the people are great. Well, that's true. And when it's not canceled, we have a meal together once a month. That's true too. There's loving people there. Absolutely true. And you'll hear the truth. That's true too, I hope, all the time. But the gospel is that if you don't turn in your heart, if you don't put your faith in Christ, hell is your destination. You are on the broad road that leads to destruction. You need to get off it and come with us and come through the narrow gate that leads to life that only a few find doesn't stop with Paul, the Apostle John, one of the twelve. And, and I have to emphasize, John is not this fiery, you know, always negative, preaching about hell kind of guy, right? If you're a first-time visitor, sorry. We, we don't do this every week. Uh, well, I'm not sorry, but it is a hellfire and brimstone uh, sermon for sure. But the Apostle John is the, the Apostle of love, is how we know him. The one who leaned on Jesus' breast. The one who, who was the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The beloved disciple. His character was marked by love. He uses the most affectionate greeting in his epistles for, for, for the church. He calls them, my little children. My beloved. He speaks vividly of hell. 
Seven times, John calls hell the bottomless pit, the pit where sinners shall sink through all eternity. He speaks in uh, Revelation 14, 19 of the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress of the wrath of God. The idea that grapes go into a winepress and you stomp them until the juice runs out. Do you see what was going on there? People in the winepress of God's holy wrath. He speaks in Revelation 20 of the lake of fire. John gives us a picture of drowning, drowning in a burning, bottomless existence that is never extinguished and where you never cease to sink under the engulfing flames. Friends, this is love. It is love to warn, right? We could go to the medical example. You go to the doctor, and the doctor diagnoses you and does some tests, and he looks at the test results, and he sees that you are in dire need of medical help. You, are, you have a terminal disease. Then what? He comes back and says, you know, if we treat the symptoms, you're going to feel really good going forward for the next few weeks, and doesn't tell you the truth, right? It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. True love, like the Apostle John had, shares the stark reality of what awaits those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is God in the flesh, and we know that God is love. Jesus loves sinners and came to save them from the eternal flames. Jesus spoke words of life. He spoke words of grace. Spoke words of mercy and in the inclusion of all who will come to him. By no means will I cast anyone out. He spoke of love. Yet he speaks of hell like no man ever spoke. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5.22 Perhaps the most awful words are the ones we read at the beginning here in Matthew 23. If your Bible's still open there, verse 33. As he, as he scalds verbally the religious hypocrites of his day, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And at the judgment, many who think that they will enter the kingdom will hear these horrifying words from the king of kings, depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Jesus gives a vivid description of hell in his parables. And he speaks of the angels that come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, he said, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized will be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Friends, what's our response? <laughs> Cling to Christ. <laughs> Cling to Him. Cling to the Savior. What does it mean that Jesus is Savior? Man, it doesn't mean that He's going to help you, you know, become an all-state wrestler next year. That's not what it means. means that he is the Savior from eternal destruction. Scripture testifies clearly of hell and its eternal nature. And now I want to take a look at the nature of hell itself. Nature, the Bible reveals to us that hell is a place of perpetual fire. The, the fires of hell are not figurative. They are not just designed to, you know, Describe something that would be unpleasant or uncomfortable. Um, they are real. The fires of hell are only ever presented in Scripture as that which is authentic. Mark 9, 48, Jesus said, Hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a place of unquenchable flames, never-ending fire. A little word study here from the New Testament, Gehenna. In fact, that's our word in Matthew 23, uh, 33, translated in the ESV, hell. It's actually Gehenna. 
Um, Gehenna is, is a reference to the Hinnom Valley, the valley immediately south of Jerusalem, a ravine there, where fires were kept burning to consume dead animals, uh, criminals, and just rubbish in general, refuse and waste. That's where everything was dumped, and the way they dealt with it was to just light it on fire and burn it. So it became symbolic for the never-ending fires of hell, Gehenna. It is the, the same valley where in 2 Kings 21, Manasseh offered his children as burnt offerings to the Ammonite false god Molech. It means a fiery place of eternal punishment for the ungodly dead. That is Gehenna. That's the, that's the Greek lexicon definition. The fires of hell are never extinguished. The book of Revelation, the Apostle John describes the lake of fire as an eternal perpetual flame of punishment. So not only is it a fiery place, it is also a permanent prison. Hell is a prison from which there is no escape, no hope, and relief. This sermon, by the way, was inspired by one of my heroes in the faith, Robert Murray McChain. McChain was a Scottish preacher. Um, He left an incredible mark on the church in the 1800s. He died in 1843 at the ripe old age of 29. Um, Most of his ministry life, which I believe was only about seven years, he dealt with uh, tuberculosis, and eventually uh, he was a very sickly man. Yet he had great zeal. He traveled far and wide when you had to ride on a horse in the rain to get places. Uh, He traveled to Jerusalem um, on a very long trip because he had a heart for the Jewish people to share the gospel with them. Um, He is definitely one of my heroes, Robert Murray McChain. A couple of sermons that I was meditating on, as well as one by John Piper, is where this comes from. Um, 1 Peter 3.19 says, "...in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison." Between his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day, Jesus went into the abyss and proclaimed victory over evil spirits held captive in hell's prison. Jesus' victory was to accomplish eternal redemption for the sins of his people, and on the third day, this victory would be evident to all when he raised from the dead, conquering death. McChain says this, with a passion that I won't be able to replicate entirely because he was a passionate preacher. Ah, sinners, if you are shut up in it, you will never come out till you have paid the uttermost penny, speaking of the prison of hell, and that you will never, and that you will never do. The bars of this prison are the justice and holiness of God. The prison of hell is a bottomless pit where you will sink forever and ever and only sink continually deeper and deeper. He said again, Ah, sinner, is it not time to begin and cry, Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let not deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Today is the day, friends, of salvation. That prayer cannot be prayed, as the first baseman said, when the Lord returns. It will be too late. And it will be too late if you don't live to take another breath tomorrow. This is the time to begin to cry, deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let not the deep swallow me up. Hell is a permanent prison. There will be no escape. It is also a place of terror. If you do not repent in sincere faith, crying out to God, appealing only to the finished work of Christ's atoning death, humble, brokenhearted, and contrite over your sin, God will be your eternal and irreconcilable enemy. God who takes no pleasure in the death of sinners, but rather that they should live, that God, He will be your eternal enemy if you die Christless, if you will not believe, if you will not be saved. God will kindle his wrath against you and cast you in to the lake of fire. Don't make any mistakes about it. There is no second chance after this life. Your second chance is right now. God forgives all of your sins. 
every one of them. The one that you can't stop thinking about when you wake every morning that you committed. He forgives that one too. His blood is sufficient to cleanse you from every sin. But you must humble your heart. You must admit that you're a sinner. That you have no standing before God in righteousness. Or else... You will not know the joys of heaven. You will know the terrors of hell. And just to be clear, uh, there has been some teaching, not a lot, but there's been some teaching throughout, throughout the different times in the history of the church of annihilationism. There is no annihilationism. The Bible is very clear that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. Turn with me, and we'll look at this one together. Turn with me to Luke 16. Luke 16 is a parable, but it gives us some details that I believe are also eternally true in the details as well. Let's take a look at this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Lazar- and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. The rich man was fully cognizant of where he was. He was fully realizing where he had been. And he fully realized the consequence of those who were still in this life. It is a place of eternal conscious torment. He begged for relief. He experienced not only eternal punishment, but eternal regret. And notice there, he argues with Abraham about sending Lazarus. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He knew what was required. He knew what delivers from hell to heaven. Repentance, that is, faith in God. Faith in Christ, which implies that you've turned from your sins and you are embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what it was. You see, friends, I don't think that most people have a knowledge problem. They don't have a knowledge problem about that they're not right with God. They're just not willing to become right with God. So we must proclaim the gospel in such a manner as to warn them of what is coming. To warn people that the consequences are eternal and they are dire. Destruction awaits. Turn from your sins and embrace Christ. Nobody Nobody born doesn't know that there's a God, and nobody born doesn't understand that 
sin is wrong. Maybe not all the nuances as revealed in Scripture, but they have a, they have a clear understanding that there is such a thing as sin and that they are accountable to God and they are hoping to beat the odds. And friends, you won't beat the odds. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. Revelation 20.10 says, and they will be tormented, tormented day and night forever and ever. There is no annihilation. You will not just go to sleep. You will not just cease to exist. Many of my naturalistic friends um, try hard to believe that you just decompose and come, become one with the earth by de- decomposing back into the soil. Um, there's some truth to that about your physical body, but there is a part of you that will live forever. In fact, that physical body will be resurrected at the judgment. Everyone will be resurrected, believers and non-believers, and God will be glorified in both. The great white throne judgment speaks of the resurrection of the dead whose names are not written in the book of life. And then in their resurrected bodies, the judgment, they are cast into the lake of fire. And hell also comes suddenly. Luke chapter 12, you remember the story of the farmer who was blessed with an abundance of crops, multiplied, became quite wealthy, So he began to make plans to tear down his barns and build bigger ones, thinking he had many years ahead to enjoy his financial prosperity. And the Lord God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? His end came suddenly and without warning this night. What's the message? Be ready. Amen? Be ready. Be ready in Christ. Have your faith in Him. Have no sin unconfessed. Have no area of your life, Christian, that you are not asking the Lord to continually change more into the image of the Lord Jesus. Every attitude of your heart, Lord, make me more like you. Transform me more into Christ. And by by that, you gain great assurance. Hell comes suddenly. You remember the story of Lot. Abraham interceded on behalf of Lot, and the Lord sent his angels to Sodom to deliver Lot and his family before he rained fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy them. And so Lot turned to his sons and his future sons-in-law and said that, Destruction was coming. Come with us. We must go. I'm paraphrasing. And it says in um, Genesis chapter 19, his sons-in-law said, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Oh, you can't be serious. You don't really believe in this whole hell thing. This whole judgment from heaven. Come on. Things are always going to go as they've always gone. We need to embrace the culture. We need to affirm those who believe differently than we do. Their destruction came on like a flood from the sky. And they were consumed. The devastation came suddenly and it came over all. Hell comes, and friends, if we could, if we could have a perspective to see all people as either in Christ, children of the living God, going to inherit that which is unbelievable, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. You who are in Christ are a co-heir with Christ, which is is really difficult to fathom, that the Lord, the King of glory, is going to share His inheritance with you and me. Or, they are people headed to destruction on the broad road. Everyone is in one of those two categories. You're either in Christ, going to inherit glory, or you're on the broad road that leads to destruction. So here's the hospital room. Families come. They're all gathered around the bed. Eyes are teary. Grandpa can't talk anymore. His life is quickly ebbing away. Sobs and quiet goodbyes are being said. Someone in the room is praying. Maybe scriptures being read. And then, in a very peaceful moment, he's gone. 
he's gone and somebody, somebody announces quietly to the family in the room, Grandpa's left. But Grandpa is fully awake. He's awakened in the chambers of horrors. He has no more sickness, no more disability. Now he is fully conscious. And he awakes to wails and screams and the black torture of the abyss of flames. He knows with stark awareness that a better place is not where he has awakened. He is suddenly and eternally confined to the prison of hell in a horrible chorus of cries and laments and the gnashing of teeth. While those who are left behind console themselves. Oh, he's in a better place now. Friends, hell is permanent. We need to not deceive ourselves and others about the nature of hell. May we be, may we pray this day to be bold with the good news. Amen? We would share at all, any expense, especially with those we love, the way to heaven in Jesus Christ. Lastly, I want to share with you that why hell exists. Hell exists because of the righteousness of God. Because God is righteous. Psalm 11.6. And by the way, I'm really sorry that I got the wrong notes in your bulletin. So you can just scratch off whatever it is and maybe jot this down. Psalm 11.6. If you want to turn there with me. We'll close with this point. Hell exists because God is righteous. Psalm 11, verse 6 and 7. Psalm 11, 6 and 7. Let him ring coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God does not punish people in hell for all eternity in a fit or a moment of angry rage, like, like a mere man. If he did, hell would likely not be permanent. But as he is righteous and holy above the heavens, perfect in majesty, eternal in the heavens, unchanging, God does not have fits of emotional, uncontrolled anger as we experience in this life as fallen human beings. God is perfectly righteous, righteous in his being and righteous in all his ways. God is righteous and he loves righteousness. The, right, the unrighteous are banished forever from his presence because he is righteous and loves righteousness. Therefore, hell exists. McChain says this, If God can cease to love righteousness, then the fire may be quenched. But as long as he is a righteous God, that fire will never be quenched. O oh, brethren, it is a foolish hope you entertain that the fire will be quenched. I have seen some on their deathbed thinking that the fire may be quenched. Ah, it is a vain hope, sinner. God will never cease to be a righteous God. Do you see the emphasis? Machain hits it right in the bullseye. He doesn't emphasize that you and I are sinners deserving of hell. He emphasizes the other direction. God is perfectly righteous, and as long as he is perfectly righteous, the fires of hell will burn. The Lord God parted with his righteous son that he might gain sinners but he cannot part with his own righteousness. Therefore, the fire of hell will never be extinguished for those who reject Christ. Hell exists because God is righteous and he loves righteousness. 
Hell is the righteous eternal condemnation of sinners who have rebelled against a holy and righteous God, and the Lord loves righteousness. He, he encourages the persecuted Thessalonian church when he says in 2 Thessalonians 1.6, since indeed God considers it just, that is righteous, to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. The King James Version translates that, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. As long as he is a righteous God, the fire of hell will never be quenched. Paul says you are, to the Thessalonian church, you are experiencing persecution, but it doesn't even compare to the, to the hell that your persecutors are going to experience. He, God will repay. And so that brings us to propitiation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And we'll talk about our great salvation now from hell. And we'll remember the Lord at the Lord's table. Romans chapter 3. We are saved from the wrath of God. Hell is the wrath of God. We are saved from the, that which our sins do in fact deserve, from a righteous God. We are saved from that because Christ is our propitiation. Look with me at Romans 3, and we'll just read verses 23 to 26. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Verse 23, For we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. None is righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned, and so none of us is really eligible, if you will, for heaven, for coming into the presence of a righteous God. What is the requirement for heaven? Perfection. Don't ever, don't ever fall back on that in your gospel presentations. You must be perfect. You say, well, well, nobody's perfect. Right. That's why God sent Jesus, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. Christ is crucified in our place, risen from the dead, conquers death, sin, and hell. And verse 24 says that we are justified by His grace as a gift. Uh, so important to pause here. You, you, you must receive the gift of salvation. It cannot be earned in any way. You know that in, in, as a believer because you know you're not perfect. You know even on your best day as a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, you still sin. Salvation is a gift. It cannot be earned. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a gift. You can't earn part of it. You don't, you don't earn part of a gift, right? It's cruel to, you know, get a promise to get paid to mow the lawn, and then somebody comes out and says, oh, I have a gift for you. What do you mean you have a gift? I agreed to do this for 20 bucks, right? I, I don't want a gift. I want you to pay me what I'm owed. So the nature of a gift is something that is undeserved. As soon as any of it, and I'm making a point of this because there are multitudes of people in our community who believe this, as soon as you earn any of it, it's no longer grace. It's no longer a gift. Okay, We just have to get some definitions right here. You don't live a good life as best you can, and then God's grace meets you the rest of the way. That is the classic works plus faith equals salvation. That is a false gospel. The gospel is, I am totally undeserving, and grace comes all the way down to forgive a guilty sinner. That's grace. Undeserved favor from God. And it is, it is God's gift. It is not accomplished in any way. 
from beginning to end, salvation is a gift. Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus did something. He redeemed you and I. He bought us back from the slave market of sin and death so that we could be declared right in the right before God. And this happens while you and I are still sinners. I am not righteous, you are not righteous, but God has declared us righteous through faith in Christ. This is the good news. This is the best news. And now we come to verse 25. Look there with me. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means a sacrifice that removes wrath. There's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with that. That is the lexical definition. That's what it means. Propitiation is a sacrifice that removes wrath. What are you saved from? You say, well, I'm saved from sin and I'm saved from going to hell. Correct. Who sends you there? What is hell? It is God's punishment on guilty sinners. God sends you to hell. You are saved from the wrath of God when you're saved from hell, when you're saved from sin. You are, you're the consequences of your sin. And so propitiation means a sacrifice that removes that wrath, the wrath of hell that condemns rightly all sinners to it. The wrath of God is absorbed by Christ by Christ on the cross in my place, in your place. That's what we call the substitutionary atonement. So when you read that word propitiation, you think of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, right? He sent him. God did it. So look at verse 25 again. Whom God put forward. God in his great love and in his perfect righteousness and justice, knew that the only way to save sinful fallen man was for him to send the perfect righteous son to take in your place the wrath that your sins deserve. This is propitiation. This, friends, is good news. And this isn't about, you know, being a better you know, person, meeting some felt need, you know, the gospel fulfilling or you know, giving you some purpose in life. Or, no. Yeah, it does those things. Yes, it does. But the thrust of the gospel is that Jesus rescues from sin by standing in your place and taking the wrath that you and I deserve. Friends, that's the gospel. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God on my behalf. So propitiation is the removal of the wrath of God from us, though we deserve it, and transferred to the righteous, sinless, spotless Son of God. Now, as you think of it in those terms, is salvation not great? Amen? It is a great salvation. It is an amazing grace as we sing. And we'll finish with verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is perfectly righteous, as, as McChane said when God ceases to be righteous, that's when the, the fires of hell will be extinguished, meaning never. He is perfectly just, perfectly righteous. And so in his perfect righteousness, he provides the solution to our dilemma. You can't ever be good enough to get to heaven. You and I. And, and you, could, you could run the list of saints in history. You could start with the Apostle Paul. You could go to your favorite saint, maybe Mother Teresa. You could go whoever it is. 
None is righteous, no, not one. And so God, to show Himself perfectly righteous at the present time, to show Himself perfectly just, sends the righteous Son. Now there's a way back. Now there's a way back into the presence of a holy God. And God remains just and righteous in the process. There is no compromise with God. He sends the perfect Son to absorb His wrath, to be the propitiation on our behalf. Friends, this gets to, Piper said, the very heart of the gospel right here in these verses. If there, if there was a paragraph that was the heart of the gospel, this is it here. There's others, but this one seems to be the most powerful. And so what an opportunity for us to remember the Lord's death that delivers us from God's wrath and then through faith in Him makes us righteous before God. Let's remember Him. The, the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper are exactly that. They are our remembrance ceremony. He gave us the bread and He gave us the cup as, a, as emblems. That He has accomplished this redemption. He is our propitiation. And so we're going to enter into a time of prayer, personal prayer. And as you pray... Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29, to examine ourselves. No, we don't want any unconfessed sin, no unreconciled relationships. If you've received the gift of eternal life in Christ, you are welcome to partake of the elements. If you haven't yet, then let those pass by. And let us remember that Christ is the propitiation for our sins who took the wrath that we deserve. If the men would please come forward, we're going to have that time of reflection right now as we pass out the bread and the cup. Hold on to those when you get them and remain in an attitude of prayer, and then I'll come up in a few minutes and we will partake together.